is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Tiffany Johnson and her husband, J.J., two self-proclaimed vacation junkies, were on the last stop of their fourth cruise snorkeling in the Bahamas when a shark attack changed her life forever. Tiffany remembers every second of the attack. Here she is with her husband, J.J., to tell their story. So my husband and I, we loved to cruise. We were on a cruise last June, and um, we went snorkeling. And uh, he went back to the boat. He wasn't feeling well, and I was out there just enjoying God's creation under the water. And I felt like I had bumped into something. Uh, And when I turned, I was face-to-face with a shark, and he had my whole arm in his mouth. We were just staring at each other. Like, time stood still. and I started to have all these thoughts. I felt like my body was like giving in, like a release almost, like giving up. Um, But the strength of the Lord just came out from inside me and it gave me the strength to fight. And I remember thinking, no, you are not gonna take my life. I am not gonna die here. I kept yanking and finally his his jaws opened. My arm kind of just flew out and I remember it was just gone like a mangled stump. And that was the, the thought that went through my mind was, oh my gosh, my arm's gone. I pulled off my snorkel mask and I screamed out, help, help me Jesus. And that's when I hear Tiff scream. And she screamed, help me, help me Jesus. And I remember looking at her, half of her right arm was gone. And it's just mangled, you know, mangled stump. And I see blood everywhere all around her. I screamed baby, and I jumped off the boat after her. And the first thing that I heard her doing was praying. My husband, he turned, and the the look on his face, I will never forget. It was just sheer terror. And he said later that it, it was as if he was in a horror movie because all he sees is blood literally saturating around the waters. He sees my arm is just severed, and I'm swimming back. And then he kind of pushed me up onto the boat. The captain grabbed my left arm and I landed in the boat. And the minute I hit that boat, the peace of the Lord just surrounded me like a cloud. It was like a tangible presence. I could feel him all over me. And I, of course, was urgent, but I I wasn't panicking. I wasn't crying. I didn't lose consciousness. I just looked at my husband and I said, give me something to stop the bleeding. I just laid my head on his lap and I just began to pray in the Holy Spirit, praying for my husband to give him strength. Then I prayed for my kids. I prayed in that boat that God would use this for his glory. That was the only time that I felt like, oh my gosh, my my wife could die on me. I remember making phone calls to her immediate family, my immediate family, telling them what happened, just to pray for her. So I was just praying that the Lord would just heal my wife, that she would be okay, that she was going to make it through this. In the hospital, I had a four to five hour surgery, and then I was still in critical care out of surgery. And they told my husband that I needed to see an American doctor immediately because there was only so much they could do. But yet there was no way for me to get back immediately because the U.S. Embassy was closed. It was a national holiday. It happened on a Friday. That was a holiday. They're always closing on the weekend. And then they were closed on Monday for an extended holiday. So they told us, it is literally impossible. We've checked every avenue, customs, U.S. Embassy, tourism, Ministry of Tourism, all these different people involved. There's no way for you to get back until Tuesday. 
And I remember looking at my husband and saying, no, no, no. God, God knows how to move the mountains, and I trust that he's got something better than this. And so we're just going to stand in agreement that he's going to move these mountains. And um, we had a, a, our pastor back in Charlotte. He started reaching out to people that he knew, and they, they, they had a, a contact of somebody that used to do p- private pilot um, for charter planes, and he got a hold of her. Well, now she works for a medvac company out of Charlotte, and so she started working on it. And she contacted the guy in Nassau that is a medvac company in Nassau, and the only reason they know each other is because he has a fiancé that lives in Charlotte, And they had made contact two months prior because he thought, you know, if something ever happens, I should probably get to know these Charlotte Medvac people. Two months before it happened, the guy in Nassau um, actually ended up paying for our trip. Um, It was 16 grand and and our insurance wasn't gonna cover it because we couldn't get a hold of him ahead of time to get pre-approval. And he told us we didn't owe him a penny that he would take care of it. And uh, he was, we didn't know him. He was a complete stranger. And so God was using so many different people to bless us and show us his love in the midst of it. It was just amazing. We're just, we're trying to establish our new normal and that even though it's been a year, it's still, you know, every day making that choice to choose joy and choose peace instead of uh, getting frustrated in the circumstance. I just had this surrendering moment of just healing, you know, in my in my soul and that connection of just saying, God, you're good regardless. You know, I'm not gonna let this stop my relationship with you. In fact, I'm gonna let it deepen it. You know, and it was like this moment of just, I know who I am and I know that he's called me to use this. And so it was that surrender of just use it, God, however you see fit. And that's exactly what's happened. It's been amazing, the opportunities we've gotten. I've been able to speak the name of Jesus and witness through my testimony. And it doesn't feel like witnessing, it doesn't feel like I'm preaching, but I am because I'm sharing God's story. And you can't deny the miracles and the God in my story. And so it's been just, what an opportunity that He's given us to share it. I've just been so, humbled, you know, by just the opportunities that he's given us. He could have done it another way, but he allowed me the privilege and the honor to see him use every piece of this and to see lives completely changed because of what happened to me. There's just no words for that. And I'm just so thankful um, that I get to be a part of that journey. And what a remarkable story and what a voice. And by the way, you heard her referencing her God. And while some of our stories, people don't have a God, and sometimes they do, and when they do, we don't edit it out here on Our American Stories. And we've heard such good feedback from believers and non-believers about that, our respect for all American stories and all American lives. And by the way, Tiffany's focus now is on making sure her kids are okay with the new normal. And she said that that was the hardest part about coming home as a mom, was to be able to make sure that well, that she could take care of her kids and not have any limitations. And she said, they don't really care, my kids. They just keep saying, we love you, Mama. Tiffany Johnson's story and her husband JJ's here on Our American Stories.
continue with our American stories. And one of the most important things we talk about here on this show is the power of forgiveness. Rob Corbin began giving speeches on forgiveness after losing his father in 2008. This powerful testimony was delivered to the congregation at Temple Beth Shalom in Sun City, Arizona. It has often been said that the biggest battles fought are not those on the battlefield. They are fought within ourselves. And when you don't forgive, you are living in the past with the weight of yesterday on your shoulders. And it prevents you from being 100% in the present. I, uh, I know that feeling well because I too lived emotionally in the past for 46 years. I call it living in an emotional cage. The pain isn't always felt, but it's always present. And as long as it is present, we will continue to be prisoners of the past fighting, fighting a battle that each one of us deserves to be free from. On a religious sense, certainly God has an everlasting tear in his eye because he gave us every human being who ever lived and is alive today the ability to leave the emotional cage of the past and to be emotionally free now and forever. But as the rabbi said a couple of weeks ago when I was listening with an open ear, God won't do for us what he gave us the ability to do for ourselves. Is there an act so heinous, so cruel, so harmful, so life-changing that we can justify crossing the line, drawing a line, and determining this is unforgivable? If the severity of the harm done could justify not forgiving. Nelson Mandela would certainly be towards the front of the line. Mandela was allowed one visitor a year for 30 minutes. No written correspondence in or out, no library, no resources. He was treated like a dog. Four years after Mandela was released from prison, he became the president of South Africa. And Nelson Mandela invited on his list of guests all of the jailers that treated him so harshly, so cruel, were all invited to come to his inauguration. And they all came. And they asked Mr. Mandela, Mr. Mandela, why? Why did you invite all these people that treated you so harshly, so cruel? They barely fed you. And they tortured you. Why did you invite them to your inauguration? And here's what he said. He said, because resentment 
is like drinking poison, thinking it's going to kill our enemies, but it only hurts us. Senator John McCain, who recently passed away, spent five and a half years as a prisoner of war in Vietnam. Two of those years were in solitary confinement. He was not given proper medical treatment. They treated him very harshly. He was repeatedly beaten and tortured. Shortly before John McCain passed away, if you looked on television, you couldn't help but see some of the excerpts of some of the things that John McCain said in interviews before his death. And one of the things that John McCain said is that he has no regrets. John McCain said, I consider myself to be one of the most fortunate men who ever lived. And I'm one of the luckiest men alive. John McCain looked within to determine his feelings. And he let himself out of the emotional cage a long time ago. It's not what happens to us that determines if we carry the weight of yesterday on our shoulders. It's what we decide to feel in our hearts that will define if we live with peace and contentment in our lives or not. Detective Stephen McDonald, when he was 27 years old, as a detective, he was called to go to Central Park in New York and investigate some bicycle robberies. He saw three men who looked suspicious. When he approached the men and began a conversation, he looked down at one of the bicycles and was shot three times in the back, and became a quadriplegic for the rest of his life. Six months after he was shot, his daughter was born. And he said at that moment, he said, you know what? He said, I need to be really thankful that God gave me the ability to be a father. Everyone in this room has the power that these people have. It is a gift from God to us to be able to repair ourselves emotionally. But God won't do for us what he gave us the ability to do for ourselves. Forgiving is not forgetting. It is remembering what happened but free from the pain of the past. Forgiving is not condoning the actions of others or in any way diminishing what happened. Here's another thing about forgiving. It doesn't require acceptance by anyone. When we forgive someone, they are free to reject our forgiveness. But the act of forgiveness is complete once you have forgiven.
There's no going back. It requires no response. It requires no acknowledgement. And here's the math. It takes two to hurt, but just one to forgive. So when you forgive, expect nothing in return. Because you're doing this for you. So that you can get what you need and what you deserve. And that is to be emotionally free. Forgiving should not be an attempt by us to correct someone who insists that they did nothing wrong. And here's a question. Think about this one. Is it better to be right or is it better to be content with a free heart? Free to accept all of the joy that life can bring us. Forgiving has nothing to do with the validity of their actions. Forgiving is not letting them off the hook or giving them a free pass. Forgiving is giving us a free pass to move forward, past the harm and the pain. And i got to tell you something else. Forgiving others is only part of it. We also have to forgive ourselves. I have uh, some spiritual judgment that I'm going to share with you about remorse and regret and shame. I know for me why God gave me the ability to feel shame and remorse and regret. It was never intended for any of us to own these feelings for the rest of our lives. God never intended that. God intended for us to own these feelings only long enough to learn from and move forward. And when we come back, we continue with Rob Corbin and his powerful speech about forgiveness after losing his dad in 2008. This is Our American Stories. Turn to the testimony of forgiveness as given by Rob Corbin before the congregation at Temple Beth Shalom in Sun City, Arizona. My father and I had a difficult relationship for 46 years. And for 46 years, I lived in my own emotional cage. I never forgave my father for the hurt that I endured as a child. For 46 years, I could have forgiven my father, but I chose not to. And then one day, on a Saturday morning, I got a call from my stepmother 
informing me that my father had taken his own life that morning and he was gone. I had 46 years to make it right. And now there was no more time to say what I needed to say. But I forgave him. I learned some things that day. I learned some life lessons that day that I want to share with you. One of the lessons that I learned that day is that there is no certainty that what can be done today can be done tomorrow. Because tomorrow is a mystery, not only to God. Time waits for no one. The other lesson that I learned is that when we judge someone and we base our feelings around that judgment, we don't always know all the facts. People who hurt us don't always share their deep pain. They don't always ask for help. I never knew that my father suffered from depression for the past 15 years of his life and was seeing a psychiatrist and was sinking deeper and deeper into a darkness that he could no longer fight. I never knew my father had medical problems, including COPD, that struggled, made him struggle to breathe at night. I never knew my father had been diagnosed with stage one of Alzheimer's a month before he took his life. My father chose not to share his pain and his battle with me. Had he done so, perhaps, I would have forgiven him a long time ago, seeing him in so much pain. I tell my story not to gain sympathy or pity, but as a reminder to all of us that there is often a bigger picture than what we see. And we should never wait for tomorrow to do what we can do today. Some of you in this room, like me, may have some unspoken words that you needed to say to someone in your life who is no longer here. I have a message for you. The message came to me two weeks after my father's death. And it's time for me to share with you this message. The message came to me in a synagogue in Prescott. I was sitting in a sanctuary trying to grasp the reality of my father's death. I was deep in grief, not knowing how I would make it through the day. And I opened a prayer book. I just randomly opened it. And when I opened the prayer book, I noticed it was somewhere in the middle of a book of 500 plus pages. And I looked at the page and I read the words. And that was the first and the last page I read that day. 
because I found what I was looking for. And perhaps by listening to the words of what I read, you may find what you're looking for when it comes to some unspoken words that for some of you, you never got to say. It is a poem by Merritt Malo, and it's in our Jewish prayer book and can be found in prayer books throughout the world. And here are the words that told me exactly what I need to do, and perhaps it'll speak with you. The name of the poem is When I Die. When I die, give what's left of me away to children and old men who wait to die. And if you need to cry, cry for your brother walking the street beside you. And when you need me, put your arms around me. When you need me, put your arms around anyone and give them what you need to give me. I want to leave you something, something better than words or sounds. Look for me in the people I've known and the people who I've loved. And if you cannot give me away, at least let me live in your eyes and not your mind. You can love me most by letting hands touch hands and by letting bodies touch bodies and by letting go of children who need to be free. And always remember, love never dies. Only people do. So when all that's left of me is love, please give me away. When I read that poem, I knew what I needed to do to honor my father and to move forward in my life. Once you forgive, a transformation will take place and you will become a teacher rather than a victim. You will teach others by example once you have forgiven how to live of life emotionally free from the past. You will be an example for everyone you meet and everyone you talk to. This will be a lasting contribution to the world. This will be part of your legacy. And you will make God very, very happy. I leave you with these words. It is not the past that defines who you are. It's what you do about it going forward. And what remarkable words by Rob Corbin. And again, a remarkable speech on forgiveness after losing his father in 2008, given at the Temple Beth Shalom in Sun City, Arizona. Your forgiveness stories, send them to ouramericannetwork.org. 
And again, forgiveness is not forgetting. It is not condoning. And it doesn't require acceptance. It's complete the moment you do it. And once you forgive, he said, a transformation will take place. You will become a teacher and not a victim. Rob Corbin's story, his father's story in a way, here on Our American Stories. We continue with our American stories, and this next one, well, we always think of Hillsdale College when we tell any stories about American history, and Hillsdale is as fine a place as any in this country to send a young person to learn about the country, about Western Civ, about all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. Few stories are as compelling, as complex, and as mystifying as that of Benedict Arnold. After all, it's a story ripe with moral ambiguity. He was both the greatest of heroes and the darkest of villains. Here's Greg Hengler with the story. Benedict Arnold is hands down America's most infamous turncoat. He has been dead for over 200 years, and his name is still shorthand for traitor as we've seen exemplified in movies like Grumpier Old Men. You traitor! You Benedict Arnold! In spite of his ultimate deception, Benedict Arnold remains one of the most gifted generals America has ever known. Ironically, if it had not been for his prowess and military genius, America might never have been victorious in the Revolutionary War. In May of 1775, Arnold led an attack on the remote British outpost at Fort Ticonderoga. Quick-tempered and strong-willed, Arnold joined forces and immediately clashed with Ethan Allen, the leader of a small militia of frontiersmen known as the Green Mountain Boys. The fort is captured thanks mostly to Benedict Arnold that forces the British to abandon Boston. Both Allen and Arnold wrote extensive reports about the events to the colonial committees. But they only accepted Allen's glorified version that barely mentions Arnold. This would be the beginning of a pattern in Arnold's military career that would repeat itself. Arnold is later given the impossible task of defending New York's Lake Champlain from attack. He constructs the first American naval fleet of 15 small war vessels to engage the British at Valcour Island in October of 1776. Although he was not victorious, his efforts not only established the American Navy, but severely delayed the advancement of the world's finest navy into American territory, allowing Washington's army time to rebuild and resupply. In spite of his aggressive and heroic achievements, the Continental Congress refused to recognize Arnold 
and he was passed over for promotion in favor of junior officers with far less military achievement. George Washington, who was Arnold's close friend and one of the few men who came to his defense, took issue with the Continental Congress's decision, rebuking them for making political rather than strategic military promotions. Here's Washington biographer Adrian Harrison. Washington appreciates the personal sacrifice that Arnold made and the leadership that he used. He sees Arnold's pain, and Washington has really no love for the Continental Congress either. They're not doing a great job supplying him. In September of 1777, Arnold was placed under the command of Horatio Gates at Saratoga in upstate New York. Gates, while never coming within a mile of the fighting, held Arnold back, confining him to his tent and refused reinforcements. Defying Gates' orders, Arnold seized a horse and rallied the Americans to victory and took a bullet to the leg and barely survived after being crushed by his own horse. However, it is this shot that will change the course of history and nearly alter the course of independence. Here's Arnold biographer Willard Randall. When the battle was over, his second-in-command said, Sir, where are you hit? And Arnold said, It's my leg. I wish it had been my heart. And I do, too. I wish it had been his heart, because if he had died at that moment, he would have been the great hero of the revolution. The battles of Saratoga are considered by many historians to be one of the top 15 most decisive battles in world history because it becomes the impetus for France to join the Americans against Britain, reinvigorating Washington's Continental Army and providing much-needed supplies and support, saving the revolution once again. Here's historian Paul Hutton. Carried from the battlefield, terribly wounded, Arnold was immediately placed under arrest for having disobeyed orders. But the day is won. It's clear to everyone on the battlefield that Benedict Arnold has won the day. Clear to everyone except Horatio Gates. He denies Arnold credit. He accepts credit for America's greatest victory. General Washington steps in and entrusts the newly reclaimed city of Philadelphia to Arnold. He is now the city's military governor. Away from the battlefield, Arnold takes full advantage of his position, living opulently while using and abusing his position running shady business deals in a lively black market. He has served, he has been wounded severely, and so he starts as a governor to take what he thinks is his due. It is here in April 1779 where the 38-year-old Arnold meets and marries a beautiful, flirtatious, and intense 18-year-old from a very wealthy loyalist family. Her name is Peggy Shippen. Here's Arnold historian William Stanley. Arnold was, to the British, what Rama was to the English, what Patton was to the German. In other words, a general who could defeat them. The British wanted Arnold out of there. Without Arnold, they'd win. But Arnold's shady side deals are exposed by the press. Once again, 
Arnold faces a slight against his honor. With an impending court-martial and a public rebuke from General Washington, Arnold and his young bride begin exploring options for disaffection. Despite his reprimand, Washington wants to give his brilliant general a field position of honor. But after Arnold suspiciously lobbies strongly for a non-field position at West Point, in the fall of 1780, Washington makes him the commander of the strategic American stronghold known as the Key to the Continent, a fort on the front lines that bears his own name, Fort Arnold. West Point becomes Arnold's key negotiating resource. Many historians claim he even conspired to turn over General George Washington himself. Here's former superintendent of the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, Lieutenant General Dave Palmer. West Point was not just a strategic spot. West Point was the strategic spot in the American Revolution. Both sides, British and Americans, agreed on one thing that if the British could ever capture the line of the Hudson, they would probably win the war. It doesn't take long for Arnold's secret plot to be unearthed, causing him to flee West Point for a British warship stationed on the Hudson. Ironically, at this same hour, General Washington was en route to West Point to feast with his trusted friend. Arnold's betrayal is so unexpected and cuts General Washington so deeply that after failing to capture Benedict Arnold, Washington proclaimed, Arnold has betrayed me. Whom can we trust now? Safely behind British lines, Benedict Arnold receives his 20,000 pounds ransom payment and a commission as Brigadier General of 1,600 troops in His Majesty's Army. Benjamin Franklin remarked, Judas sold only one man, Arnold, three million. Benedict Arnold's treason united the 13 colonies and increased their enlistments and re-enlistments in ways that neither he nor the British could have ever foreseen. Benedict Arnold died in London in 1801 at the age of 60, a spiritually, financially, and emotionally broken man. There's a monument on the battlefield at Saratoga National Park, the site of his greatest victory, a boot statue commemorating the permanent wounds General Benedict Arnold sustained with the inscription, in memory of the most brilliant soldier of the Continental Army, who was desperately wounded on this spot, winning for his countrymen the decisive battle of the American Revolution and for himself the rank of Major General. The monument bears no name, and there's good reason. Because there is a law in America, passed by the Congress, that you can neither chisel the name Benedict Arnold or mold it in metal. So, I mean, they took this guy right off the face of the earth. Benedict Arnold's betrayal is profound. At the same time, America would have never emerged successfully from the Revolutionary War had it not been for his innovative leadership. Here's former military historian at West Point, Major John Hall. 
Were it not for his treason, he would almost undoubtedly be one of the most celebrated American commanders of all of the American Revolution. West Point to this day would probably still be called Fort Arnold rather than West Point. In the years following his death, Arnold's wife Peggy spent her time settling all of his debts, except the biggest one of all, to America, which could never be paid. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job, as always, to Greg Hengler and to all the supporters and contributors to this show. Without their help, this isn't possible. And thanks, as always, to Hillsdale College for all the work that they do. Benedict Arnold's story, a rich, complicated, and ultimately tragic one, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and whenever we can, we bring you authors whose books we just couldn't put down. And today we're hearing stories from Roe Patterson, whose book Crude Blessings, the amazing life story of Glenn Patterson, American oil man, is a celebration of his father and the values he modeled. Roe, I want to start at the beginning. The first words from the book, quote, it's a day I'll never forget. Saturday morning, early spring of 1986. I was about 12. Dad shook me awake around 6 a.m. Nothing strange about that. Saturday was a work day. So was Sunday sometimes. He's been putting us to work on various weekends since elementary school. End of quote. That's where things started off. Where were you? Where were you going? And why? Well, that particular Saturday, we were going out to cut up uh, some structural pipe basically leftover flow lines from an old oil field and dad was selling the pipe off um, kind of as a, uh, a spare job for some spare income to make his uh, interest payments at the bank. Um, times were pretty tough in 1986. The company was in pretty rough shape. Uh, dad and, and my uncle Clois had had pretty much hawked everything they had. They were borrowed to the hilt and and they couldn't make their principal payments at the bank, and the bank had put them on interest-only payments. And uh, Dad just did little things uh, all everywhere he could to earn enough money to make his interest payments. And one of those things was was going out and cutting up all that old flow line and selling it off as structural steel. And that's what we were doing that day. Talk about where you were at the time. What part of the country were you living in? And talk a little bit more about your life growing up at that time. So we were in Snyder, Texas, which is western Texas, and we were in uh, really what amounted to the eastern side of what is called the Permian Basin, which is is still today one of the hottest oil and gas fields uh, in the world. Kind of middle of nowhere, out, out in the middle of west Texas on some ranch land, you know, that's where we went to cut up this old oil field uh, flow line and, and pipe uh, so that we could sell it for a 12-year-old kid, you know, the, the world was pretty small. I mean, I, I, didn't, I didn't think there was much else out there besides West Texas. And let's talk about your dad's dad as we dig into the story of your father, and that's what this really is. This is a father-son story. But your father had a father. And you say this about him, quote, he worked hard at working hard. My dad was raised by this man and by these principles. Talk about your granddad. 
You know, my granddad was an interesting character. Uh, he came from a generation that really prided themselves in how hard they worked. Uh, they took a lot of pride in the fact that they had steady work and that they, they worked hard at their jobs. And he felt, uh, my granddad and, and my dad to a great extent, and I still do today, that a man is measured by his efforts and how hard he works, not necessarily for how much money he's accumulated. And so wealth was not an impressing thing to my grandfather. Um, he was just a hard worker. And my dad was raised that way, you know, that you measured a man by how hard a, uh, he worked at a particular job. And, uh, you know, my dad, to a large extent, raised my brother and I the same way. You know, we still today will we'll say things about you know, individuals in the company that I run, you know, I, I will label people sometimes. Well, that guy's a hard worker or she's a really hard worker. And that means a lot to me. It's not necessarily a quantification of their success. It's that when they apply themselves, they're driven and they have a sense of urgency about accomplishment in, in whatever task or activity that they've chosen to endeavor on. That's a big deal to me. Yeah, it is indeed. Let's talk about poverty. Dirt poor was how my father described his upbringing. Talk about your father, where he grew up and how. He was born in 1946, by the way, just a year after World War II ended. And these were a lot of American men coming home from real, real tough battle. Yeah. And, uh, you know, dad was one of these guys. They, they moved around a lot when he was a kid, kind of uh, town to town, chasing work. And dad was definitely got to witness all of that. And they had to work at a young age. You know, my dad had to start helping out at a young age, just kind of like I did. They didn't have a lot. They farmed a little and they cut up uh, scrap iron. He, he got his nickname because he cut up scrap iron. Uh, you know, he was kind of a master of junk. He would recycle stuff and sell it off. And then always in, in our part of the world, there was the oil field as a source of income. And so my grandfather, my dad, myself, we're all products of, of the, what the industry brought to our area, our geography. Indeed. Now you also say about your dad, quote, he didn't learn much from books. He would learn from people. But he had an intelligence and an instinct that came from his gut. You also note that he was small for his size when he entered high school, but grew up and grew up to be a bit of a brawler and a bit of a truant in, in high school. Well, he was a little bitty guy when he started high school. I think he was one of the smallest boys in his entire um, high school class. Uh, uh, but uh, by the time he, he graduated and got into college, he was about 6'4", and he weighed, you know, 220 pounds. So he grew up quite a bit. You know, he's a tough guy. Uh, he didn't like anybody being picked on. He couldn't stand a bully. He had a few fights where, um, you know, the bully got whipped because he, uh, he picked on the wrong person and Dad decided to back him up. And so uh, he was that kind of guy. He always rooted for an underdog, and that's kind of the, the environment that he was raised in. He had a brother, my uncle, whose uh, name is Alton Patterson, still, still alive today, and, and he and Alton had notorious fights. You know, bare-knuckle fighting was no big deal to them. They, they, would, they would do it at the drop of a hat, and I think they kind of liked it. Um, you know, I think Dad was, I would, I would call him a, a, as much of a, a serial truant as any other high school kid. If he could get out of school, he tried to. 
he never really was interested in a lot of book learning. He went and got his college degree, worked himself through college by working in the oil field. He wanted that degree so he could go be a school teacher and get out of the oil field, you know, and then he and he thought about going back into grad school at one point uh, just so he could become a principal because he figured, well, if I'm going to be in a school system, I might as well be the boss of the school. You know, he wasn't a studious person where he would he would do lots and lots of reading or anything like that. He did read character, though. He was very good at sizing up business deals and people involved in those business deals. He could always spot a crook a long way off. He was very intuitive at reading people. And when we come back, more from Roe Patterson, author of Crude Blessings, and it's the life story of his dad, Glenn Patterson an American oil man. This is Our American Stories. And we're back with Roe Patterson, the CEO of Basic Energy Services, and the author of Crude Blessings, which is a family story centered on his father, Glenn. But of course, we can't really understand our fathers without talking about our moms. And Ro, your mom, she had experienced some real heartbreak before she met your dad. Talk about that. Yeah, my mother, would, uh, she had gotten pregnant in her, in her first marriage uh, to, to a gentleman that she ended up parting ways with. So there she is, a single mom with a child, very young. Um, did, did fall in love again with a, um, a highway patrolman and uh, had a good life. They, uh, she enjoyed being married to him, wasn't married to him very long, and, and tragedy struck again. Uh, he died in a car accident. And now she, you know, been married twice, still raising a, a young child on her own, and uh, uh, really wasn't looking for another relationship when she met my dad. But uh, my dad had a best friend, and that best friend was dating my mom's very good friend. And so they double dated some, and she liked him, and they had a lot of fun when they would go out. He made her laugh. And uh, and so the the relationship just sort of blossomed from there. But neither one of them were looking, you know, for that kind of love when they found it. And that's uh, that's something that we know happened because they get married, and ultimately he chooses to teach with her. They go out to a little city called San Antonio, and talk about what that was like for your dad, because it's so very different than what he would end up doing. Did he ever talk to you about the years he taught and ultimately he refed too, I, I remember, right? Right. He was a basketball referee. He loved it. Uh, they both loved it. And they loved San Antonio. My mom was a drama teacher and dad was a, a, a DECA or a life skills uh, teacher. One of the first things he had to do when he, he got married to my mom was uh, teach her how to balance a checkbook because she couldn't do it because uh, they just didn't have very much money. But they loved their life. It was simple. And they weren't ever going to be very wealthy, but Dad uh, said, you know, it was a good a good time to be young and married in San Antonio. I think that reality was starting to set in when I came along, a second child. You know, school teachers at that time and still today don't make near enough money uh, than for what they do, and uh, the bills were starting to pile up a little bit, and uh, and that's why when the oil field came calling. 
it had a certain attraction. Let's talk about a man named Cloyce Talbot, because, but for him, you never know what would have happened. Cloyce was my uncle. Uh, he married my dad's sister, and uh, the closer that uh, Cloyce and dad got, got to know each other, the more they liked each other. Cloyce had uh, gone to Texas Tech and gotten a petroleum engineering degree. He had started a couple of companies, and uh, he was in search of fortune in the oil and gas industry. And he liked Dad's work ethic. In fact, Dad used to work for him part-time during the summers uh, when he wasn't teaching school. And and Cloyce really liked the the way Dad ran his equipment and and took care of things and, uh, and the natural human leadership that that dad possessed. He was very capable of getting people enthusiastic about doing their job and doing it well. And Klaus saw all those qualities in dad. And uh, in one Thanksgiving, he hit dad up. You know, he said, look, uh, you know, there's a lot of people making money in the drilling business, and uh, I think we ought to start a drilling company. And dad said, oh, no, heck no, I wouldn't know the first thing about that, and, and I don't have any money. Cloyce said, you know, they're loaning money every day to guys that are not as smart as you and I. We ought to go raise some equity with some investors, go get some loans, and go build some rigs. Cloyce has an infectious personality, too. He's a good salesman and very optimistic, a a real hard charger, a hard worker also. And he finally uh, talked Dad into it, and, and the rest was history. They started with a big loan, a few investors, and and went out and bought one old rig fixed that thing up and put it to work. Uh, little by little, that's how they started, you know, the second largest drilling company in, in the world. And I love the part where he called his partner finally after pondering this and said, why the hell not? And that's just, uh, that's a remarkable spirit. I mean, leaving something you know, and particularly with kids and a mortgage, to just well, go out into this unknown world, and that took a lot of guts. Talk about oil and also the odd things that happen in your business, the huge swings in prices that sometimes a great success can suddenly and dramatically turn into an epic loss. That is an understatement of all time. Uh, There's no more cyclical industry than the energy industry. You know, oil drives the world. It's our number one stock for all fuels, uh, whether it be gasoline, kerosene, jet fuel, uh, diesel. It's the base component for all plastics in the world. You know, the world can't live without energy and without crude oil. It is still a a fantastic industry. Um, You can go from rags to riches or riches to rags uh, faster in this industry than any that I can think of. If you see a very successful oil and gas entrepreneur, you're probably looking at someone who's been broke multiple times in their life uh, before they gained their ultimate success. That is true to this day. Um, I know very few successful people in my industry, including me, who haven't been busted at some point. And I can't think of a of a more American kind of uh, a resilient you know, entrepreneurial, fun industry than our oil and gas industry where uh, you see so many people become wealthy because they work really hard at it. And so it's a, it's a fantastic and amazing industry. There's days when I hate it and I wish I knew how to do something different. Uh, but most days I wake up and I I'm, I'm feel pretty blessed. Your dad and his partner began in 1977, and that was, I guess, a pretty good time to start a drilling company 
Why was that? Well, the OPEC had, had uh, cut off some supply. They were trying to control market share globally, and it had run some prices up. So there was a, a, a real desire uh, in North America to, to produce uh, you know, our own energy, our own oil so that we wouldn't have to face, you know, gas shortages and gas lines and, and uh, you know, be constantly dependent upon foreign oil. So it was a real boom time in, in the late 70s. It was a good time to, to jump into the business. Let's talk about drilling. It's no duck walk. And the hard part about starting a drilling operation, it turned out, was finding good rigs. Talk about that. Yeah, so the, the industry is definitely not an easy one. And it does require a lot of ingenuity. We're constantly improving it and gaining on efficiencies. Uh, you can imagine that the drilling wells in the early 80s or late 70s versus drilling wells today were kind of quantum leaps ahead as far as technology. But the, but the general sense of what we're trying to accomplish is still the same. You know, we're searching for buried treasure. The thing about Clois and Dad starting in the drilling business together, you know, Dad had worked on rigs his whole life, but he didn't have the foggiest idea of how to run a drilling company. And Clois thought that that, uh, Dad knew what he was doing, and Dad thought Clois knew what he was doing. So uh, it was the blind leading the blind when they really got off and got into the ditch and got, you know, multiple rigs they were trying to run. But, uh, you know, they, they worked at it, and they worked to, well together. They put together a great team of people. They surrounded themselves by as, as much wisdom as they could. There were fits and, and spurts there, but they finally uh, started to hit, you know, a few base hits and, and, uh, and some doubles along the way there in the early 80s before uh, the next oil field crash kind of found them in the mid-80s. I love that you wrote this about investors and what they were probably thinking my God, these guys can't drill one well. How are they ever going to build a company? They lost $800,000 in their first two years. They hung in there and they stuck it out. Talk about that resilience uh, because it's coming in handy right at the beginning of this business, isn't it? Oh, and it comes in handy every time we have a big cycle shift in this industry. You have to have a never say die, never say quit kind of attitude. You know, they ran into several really bad cycles along the way. You know, my dad used to say, hey, we were, we were bankrupt. We just didn't file the paperwork. One thing would always lead to another. And I think that their faith in God, their faith in each other, the hard work, the tenacity that they showed, they always found a way to just get out of the ditch, dust themselves off, and get back to making money again. Dad used to say, I'd rather be lucky than good. You know, have you ever noticed how lucky a hardworking man is? And I think he would also say today, you know, have you ever noticed how blessed we all were? They definitely had their share of, of hiccups along the way. They were land drillers for the most part, and they got into the offshore drilling business, and uh, it almost wrecked them, almost completely sunk the company. And they ended up having a catastrophic loss of one of the pieces of equipment in the Gulf. It fell over. It was called a punch-through, and it was a, a natural occurrence. It was something you insured the rig for, and when they figured out what the insurance was going to pay, it ended up paying all their debt off and getting them back out of the ditch again. And they sold the rest of the equipment and, and made out like bandits. But it, it was just unbelievable amount of, of, uh, of luck that, that did it for them. And luck never hurt anybody. We were bankrupt. We just didn't file the paperwork. I just love that. To learn more about the resilience 
of Glenn Patterson. His son, Roe, is the author of Crude Blessings, their story, when we return here on Our American Stories. And we continue with Roe Patterson talking about his dad, Glenn, a legend in the energy business. Roe, tell us about the time you were in the yard with your dad, and he did something that really surprised and kind of confused you at the time. My dad was very competitive, but he also had a lot of respect for another competitor. So anytime he, you know, he saw someone who was trying hard, working hard, even if they were his competitor... He admired him, and he had a lot of respect for him. And one day, uh, one of his uh, competitors came into the yard, and I happened to be in the pickup with him. Uh, and the guy was down on his luck. He had had a piece of equipment fail, and uh, he was in a real bad jam. He knew that Dad had a spare piece of this special equipment that was that was needed, and he needed it, and he couldn't get it anywhere else. Um, and he had come to Dad for help, and Dad never batted an eye. He loaded that equipment up for that gentleman and said, pay me when you can, good luck. Never, never thought twice about it. And I was dumbfounded. I was like, that guy's, you know, you're bidding against him every day for jobs. Why would you help him? And you know what? He just looked at me and he, 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 he almost couldn't figure out why I was asking. He said, because he needed help. And uh, it was the right thing to do. And he, he met every challenge in his life that way. You know, Dad wasn't an extraordinarily religious person uh, early in life. He was later in life, but early in life he, he really wasn't. But he lived his life by some very godly principles. You know, to treat others as you want to be treated was probably one of his biggest mantras. And he always did. He always tried to, to treat people the way he would want to be treated and, and treat them ethically. And so it didn't matter if it was customer, competitor, vendor, employee, he wanted you all to be treated well when you had a dealing with him or with his company. Tell the story of Jody Nelson, because one person like him can destroy a company. And we had talked earlier about your dad having a keen eye for character, but as keen as any of our eyes are, one can always slip through. Talk about Jody. Yeah, you know, he was a young guy, a sharp guy, very likable Clois and, and, and even Dad had given him a lot of responsibility. He'd moved up through the organization. When it came time where they needed a new CFO, um, they gave him a shot. He was very young, but uh, they thought he was very capable as well, and that uh, under the, uh, the tutelage of both Clois and Dad and the rest of the board members, they felt like he could fulfill the role. What they didn't know was that the guy was uh, diabolic, and he had a huge fraud invoicing scheme that he was running in the background, keeping it hidden from the auditors, keeping it hidden from the board. And Patterson was doing extraordinarily well during this time frame, and so the profits weren't missed uh, because the company was making so much money and doing and doing so well. When it finally all came crashing down on this guy, uh, you know, he got caught over over a little tiny expense account. And then that led to one thing and then led to another. And so you, you see a lot of these fraudsters, when they're finally caught, it's usually some little trip up that gets them, you know, and uh, something small that they've, they've kind of uh, forgotten about and, and just really hadn't paid attention to. And then that, but that being what it is, being fraud or being wrong, 
makes people question everything you do. And then they start to dig. And when they dig, they, that's when they find more and more. And that's what happened in Jody's case. You know, he had misused the trust that the company had given him, that Clois had given him, and that dad had given him. And he had defrauded the company out of several million dollars, uh, 70-something million total, over an eight-year period. You know, he ended up going to federal pen, I think, for 25, in a 25-year sentence with, with no chance for parole. And, you know, it, it ruined his life. And uh, it's just a shame to see someone get so sick with, with greed that, uh, that they were able to do that. Both Clois and Dad were always very disappointed that they didn't sniff him out quicker and keep it from being such a, a, a wreck of a story, both for, for the company and for Jody himself. Yeah, it had to hurt Dad and, and, and his partner on the deepest level because that kind of betrayal is personal, A, and B, it's reputational. Let's talk about the merger that changed the family business. You wrote this. It was a proud moment for my father. In two short decades, the former San Antonio schoolteacher and basketball referee had catapulted himself to the helm of a company worth $2.6 billion. Talk about that. Yeah, there was a, a, a phase of consolidation in the industry. We, we go through these periods in the oil and gas industry, and especially on the oil field services side of the industry where we, we build a lot of fragmentation in the industry. So there ends up being a lot of, of uh, privately backed or small sponsors uh, that, that, that build up too many oil field service companies. And then so you see these waves of consolidation where they start to get all bought up by some of the bigger actors in the market. And what, what Clois and Dad had done in the uh, and the, the late uh, 1990s was they went on a buying spree. And they started, I actually got out of college about that time and was working for them. And we were buying drilling companies up left and right and just merging them into to Patterson. And, and Patterson was becoming bigger and bigger. And Patterson's biggest competitor out there in this whole purchasing spree was a company called UTI, Union Triad. And, uh, uh, you know, they finally got the good sense, both the Union Triad leadership and the Patterson leadership, to put the companies together and form an even larger drilling company and quit, quit bidding on drilling companies with each other and just put, put themselves uh, uh, under the same uh, public entity. And they, they did that in, in uh, the 2000, 2001 time frame. And it was a very proud moment for all of them, for Clois, for Dad. Uh, they were They had really seen the company go from, you know, one rig to, to, you know, well over 300 combined rigs together. And uh, it was it was pretty magical to see that kind of homegrown American success story. And what a long way your dad had come, Ro, from having one rig where practically nothing worked to this merger into an industry giant. But as well as things were going with work, your dad soon had a new challenge to face as he entered retirement. Again, I quote from your book, quote, taking time off was simply not in dad's playbook. And here he was retired. But there was something eating away at dad that was more troubling. It was subtle, but he couldn't deny it anymore. He had started forgetting things. Talk about that. Yeah, so dad's... uh probably getting about 59 years old uh, at this time. It's probably 2005-ish, uh, 4-ish, right in there. And, uh, you know, they, they just had an unbelievable run in the industry. I think Dad had been at the helm of the new combined Patterson UTI for 
three or four years, and they had gotten through the Jody uh, disaster, and he just felt like it was time to hang it up, and he felt like it was going to be a time for new people with new ideas, new new levels of energy to come in to the industry. But he 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 had a hard time doing it. He had a hard time giving up. Um, but I think one of the things that sort of pushed him over the edge that it was time to retire was he was starting to forget very small things. Uh, his short-term memory was starting to fade a little bit. I would have multiple conversations with him that were the same, you know, and I'd say, Dad, we've already talked about this. You know, we talked about it yesterday. Oh, no, we didn't. Yes, we did. You know, and, and then, uh, you know, he would forget the score to the, to, to the golf game, you know, how, you know, how many holes he had won versus how many holes I had won. It was little things. Uh, he'd forget a phone number. He never forget phone numbers. He was, his mind was like a steel trap. He could always remember people's phone numbers. But he started forgetting little things like that, and it scared him. And it was unfortunate, and here he is, you know, in the twilight of his life, in the twilight of his career, and he's, he, you know, he's, he's ready to retire and ring the bell. And, uh, you know, it was obvious that something was wrong. And uh, he went to multiple physicians to, to seek answers. And the answer came back each time that it was Alzheimer's. And that was tough to swallow. You know, he, he just couldn't believe that here he was, you know, 59, 60 years old, and he has, he's being diagnosed with Alzheimer's. He just, uh, it took the breath out of him and took the wind out of him for sure. And when we come back, we'll continue with this remarkable story. And in the end, parts of it sad and parts of it triumphal. Roe Patterson's story of his father, Crude Blessings, the Amazing Life of Glenn Patterson, American Oil Man. That story continues here on Our American Story. Continue with the story of Glenn Patterson is told by his son Roe. And we had just learned about this remarkable merger and this man who'd started with nothing, building this big company and selling it. And then, after that remarkable news, devastating news, and the diagnosis of Alzheimer's. And by the way, we talk a lot about Alzheimer's here on this show. And as you know, Roe, it's something that affects the entire family, not just the patient. Tell us about a particularly tough day for you, June 10, 2010. Yeah, very hard day. My brother and I had been, you know, we'd been contacted multiple times by, by local police, by friends of the family, and just said, you know, hey, your dad pulled out in front of so-and-so. Um, his motor skills were starting to, to, to diminish, and he did not need to be behind the wheel. He was just forgetting some of the the things that we all take for granted when we're driving. You know, a light turns green, you go, and then when it turns red, you stop. And, and, you know, he was forgetting things like that. You know, it just wasn't making as much sense. But he still had a huge amount of pride in driving himself and in his vehicle. You know, the, the, his pride had always been a clean pickup, and he still had a clean pickup, and he still loved driving around in that truck. 
And, uh, you know, when we, we went to talk him out of, of driving or tried to talk him out of driving, it was about a, as big of a fight and argument and upsetting to him as I ever could have imagined. And, uh, you know, it's just it's very difficult to, for someone who has a lot of pride uh, to, to, you know, be told, you know, you can't drive anymore. Um, and that's a, just a, a very painful thing to have or have to talk to your parent about. Indeed. At one point, I think things got so bad for your dad that he actually thought about just giving up and, and even suicidal notions. And you wrote this, my heart sank. The man who never quit, who never gave in to adversity, always pushed ahead no matter what and modeled that for everyone around him was ready to quit. Yeah, you know, he, he, had, he had given me every indication that he was thinking about taking his life. He had said as much to my mother, um, you know, that he wasn't good for anything anymore. You know, the disease had robbed him of, uh, of his pride. And, um, you know, he was just at his wit's end and at his bottom. You know, his, the, his morale was, could not have been any lower. And he felt like he was just going to be this burden on everybody for, for the rest of his life, you know, and, and, and uh, he just wasn't willing to, to accept that. You know, I quickly removed the firearms from the house and, and made sure that, uh, you know, that uh, there was no way he could do that. Um, but it's something that uh, our family just had to deal with. I think a lot of families, when you're dealing with something like cancer or or Alzheimer's or any of these, you know, diseases that uh, that can be terminal, that's um, you know, it's definitely something that that patient has to 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 deal with and overcome is their you know their their mortality and that and that. Um, you know, ending it quickly and uh, uh, could be one uh, solution, but it's not. It's not the right one for your family or for yourself. And and uh, but it was a uh, it was a a difficult period that Dad uh, did did overcome. Uh, and and uh, he found quite a lot of joy in in religion a- uh, after that. But but it, it kind of took him hitting rock bottom before um, you know he found that. Yeah, let's talk about that. You know, there was a lot for your dad to take in almost at once. The embezzlement, the retirement, the exit from his company, all tough things. Then the Alzheimer's. Let's talk about your dad's faith walk. You wrote this, quote, All of these things, they all hit him at basically the same period of his life. No wonder he wasn't at peace. I did a lot of praying for him that year. So did Mom. We asked the Lord to help open Dad's heart. But everyone is responsible for their own salvation, you can't make a horse drink, especially a stubborn mule like Glenn Patterson. Talk about your father's faith walk as a young man and a man. You know, he always had a strong belief in God. He didn't practice religion very well. He was not a good churchgoer. His mother was very religious, and he was raised on those principles of, of honor and integrity and ethics and doing the right thing and being good to people, giving to others in need. And he did a lot of that in his life. He lived a very godly life, as I said earlier, without even really understanding why or how. But at the end of his life, he wanted that personal relationship with God that he had never had. That he, you know, that prayer life, uh, that intimacy with God that, that was missing, he, he went looking for it and he found it. And uh, it, it was it was unbelievable uh, to see that kind of transformation of him. And when he found his religion, 
he faced it like he did almost everything in his life with tenacity. He went to church every single Sunday. He sat in the same spot. He was very involved. He wanted to hear the, the Word of God spoken. He wanted to be preached to. He wanted to sing the, sing the songs. He, he loved being in, at the church services and listening to the music. And, he, and he, you know, so he jumped into religion with both feet, uh, you know, kind of like he faced anything in life. You know? So um, it was a very uh, peaceful thing for my family to experience after we had just seen him go through all of that adversity. I want to get to one moment between your mom and dad in this great book. And your, your story started like this, quote, He looked in my mom's eyes. There's no fixing what's wrong with me, is there? It was one of the few times my mother says my dad really faced his illness. No, I don't think God intends to heal you. For whatever reason, this is his will for you. Your dad took it stoically, you wrote. His faith was now strong enough to accept God's will fully. He knew he was no longer in charge and would never be in charge again. He never really had been in charge at all. What a relief. Yeah, you know, Dad was, uh, he was the one everyone looked to. You know, he was the leader. He had the answers, you know, both in his company and his personal life. He was a leader of men. And uh, there was a lot of responsibility that comes with that when you're a leader like that. And, uh, you know, people look to you for the answers to predicaments or problems or solutions to challenges. And for him to face that uh, rationalization, there was nothing he could do about Alzheimer's. Um, and that God was in control and was going to take care of him, um, he was relieved. Uh, you know, he, he, was, um, he was finally at peace. He didn't have to do anything. He didn't have to be the go-to person. God could do that for him. And I think it dawned on him, and it hit him at just the right time that it needed to. Indeed. I want to read from your eulogy, and I think for anybody listening out there who wants to take some lesson from this, and I think it's why you put it in your eulogy, and Rose, so I'm going to read it. You said, Dad was a Christian, but for most of my life he was not. I knew he wanted me to know Christ, but he wanted very little relationship with God for himself. He didn't come to church with us, and we didn't talk with him much about God. When we did talk about it, he would say, God and I have an understanding, and don't worry about me. But I did worry. I worried I wouldn't see him in heaven. You see, it was pride that prevented him from being saved, and we knew it, and he knew it. It wasn't shocking. I've known many men who suffered from the same problem. In fact, we all probably have. Talk about that pride and how how blessed you were to see that fade away at the very end. Well, I think so many times, um, you know, human nature is that we, we we have to solve certain things. There's... There's always uh, problems that that, uh, that that we have in life, and and we we are the ones that have to handle it, right? And I think as men, uh, you you, it's, you slip into that uh, misconception a lot uh, that you you've got to handle it. You know, you've got to step up for the family and take care of certain things. I think for Dad, it was a it was a blessing later in life to to realize that no, you you, you just have to have faith. You have to give up your will so that his will can be done and that's a difficult transition for anyone to make it's a challenge i think we have our whole lives 
is to submit to you know a higher authority and a higher power and 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 that will of that power and that submissiveness is a pride thing you know it's i'm i'm got to take care of this this is my issue you know you take care of you i take care of me and and the truth is we all need help and uh and i think that's what dad uh found uh, later in life uh it just took him a lot longer uh but uh but he well, i was proud of him and proud for him that he had finally uh figured out that uh god was in control and that uh, all he had to do was um, believe and pray for his will to be done in his life indeed and i'll close with the final words of your eulogy i believe dad's legacy and his testimony should be this. It is never too late for Christ, and it's never too early. Dad was a good man and a great dad, but he had many flaws just like we all do, and he was a sinner. He wasn't perfect, but because he was broken and believed, he's perfect now. And thanks to Roe Patterson for that remarkable tribute to his own dad and families that don't know their own stories. Well, how sad, and we're trying to correct that, and we want to hear your stories, your family stories, a father, a mother, a grandparent. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. By the way, this has been a running series about a town, too, this remarkable town, Midland, Texas. Send some stories about your town, because we'd love to tell a story about another town. The country is filled with so many great towns and communities. And by the way, thanks to the Sparks family. They recommended the Patterson story. And the Sparks family, well, we did a story about them, too. Don has 11 family members spanning three different generations working at his 29-person company, Discovery Operating. And you can hear that great family story at OurAmericanNetwork.org as well. Roe Patterson, Glenn Patterson, their stories, the Patterson family story, here on Our American Stories.